0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, October 25th at 11 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hi. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Welcome back, ladies. It has been a busy news week and it's not even over. Uh, Let's start with the latest. President Trump, who is involved in a maelstrom of other news, some of which we will get to in a moment, uh, later this afternoon is going to announce still more news on prescription drug prices. This time by revamping how the Medicare program pays for drugs administered in doctors' offices and outpatient centers, the so called Part B drugs. Anna, you've been following this year our drug price expert. Before we get to the news, first tell us what what part b drugs are and why they are so expensive sure part b drugs are the ones that
1: doctors are giving in their offices or in outpatient clinics essentially because they're injections or infusions they're not something you want to be giving yourself um,
0: they're not pills mostly. they're not
1: pills yeah they're not easy to to take um And so a lot of these drugs are um, for, you know, there's kind of some top conditions they are typically for. This would be maybe rheumatoid arthritis. There's some cancer drugs, also some drugs for some pretty serious eye conditions. Um, And so these fall under the Part B program, which is very different from Part D as in dog, um, because Part D are the pharmacy drugs that you're picking up. Those are typically your pills or or things like that. Um, And so What the Trump administration released this morning is they put out a report, um, which, you know, this Trump is very much expected to highlight when he talks later today, about international pricing of drugs. And they looked at 27 Part B drugs. Um, They compared them to 16 other countries. So this was, you know, Japan, Canada, um, a lot of your European countries, France, Germany was on there. And they essentially found that their, the U.S. Medicare program is paying 47% more um, than all of the other, the, the international um, governments are paying. So that's about $8 billion more than they um, may have, you know, would have paid otherwise. So that's a lot of money because these drugs, total U.S. spend on them, these 27 drugs was $17 billion. So that's you know, they they even really even by
0: Medicare standards, that's a lot of money, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, they they're you know because they're more complicated drugs, they tend to cost more. Um, and but so one of the the issues um, is they also are it's just a totally different way that Medicare has a reimbursing for them. So a doctor um, would stockpile, he would purchase these drugs um, and pay for them. You know, the doctor Upfront. would pay up front and. Medicare would reimburse um, the average sales price plus 6%. Well, really, that turns into sort of an incentive for doctors to get um, the higher-priced drugs because they make more money off of them. Because
0: the 6% of more money is more money. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and they really like more money. So um, you know, there is some talk about getting at that 6%. Um, there had been a proposal in the Obama administration to make it a flat fee, so you would pay, um, you know, average sales price and 20 bucks or something like that. And um, that didn't go that over did not go well. <laughs> the, the doctor's lobby doesn't like that. Pharmaceutical manufacturers don't like it either um, because they like the incentive for the doctors to buy the higher priced drugs. Um, and so this is something we expect, you know. To hear Trump sort of sort of talking about ways to maybe get at that, um, and also to um, this word negotiation again is coming back up, which we've heard in drug pricing. Um, these drugs aren't negotiated per se. They, the doctors are, you know, paying what they can, or you know, they pay their price, but they're not like pharmacy benefit managers who are actually negotiating for the prices. And the Trump administration wants some way to inject. That kind of negotiation into these, um, how exactly the Trump administration will do those things and how they'll get at this international pricing issue as well is all kind of fuzzy um, on exactly what the what this proposal will be and how serious it will be. You know, will it be a regulation? Will it be um, something a little bit more um, more fuzzy? And so that will be the update at two o'clock that we'll hopefully but, hear.
0: But I will say unlike some of the other things that we've talked about with drug prices like putting prices in ads which nobody thinks is going to have a very big effect i mean if they could do something about how they pay for PARP drugs it could have a really big effect right
1: it could it could have a huge effect i will say um you know this morning i was reading a lot of the notes that analysts on wall street were sending about this and they were all extremely skeptical that anything would be able to happen except maybe some of the negotiation side um, and, you know, they therefore were trying to sort of assuage their clients that, you know, don't worry, the stock prices don't need to suffer based on this. Trump, there is there is the idea that, you know, maybe a little bit of this is political. We're two weeks from less than two weeks from the midterms. And
0: I was just going to ask. That. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and so this is a big thing for the base. And, um, you know, that's something that can get them fired up, especially if we're going after other countries. I mean, that, you know, that's that's something that I think will appeal um, and Republicans have had a harder time on other aspects of health care. So I think this is something Trump wants to pivot to.
0: What a good segue. <laughs> um, I really, really wanted to skip talking about the midterm campaigns this week because we talked about it the last two weeks, and we'll talk about it next week. But... I really feel like we need to address this ramping up of Republicans claiming they are for pre-existing conditions and they always have been. President Trump on Wednesday tweeted and I quote, Republicans will totally protect people with pre-existing conditions. Democrats will not vote Republican. At a rally in Wisconsin Wednesday night, Republican Governor Scott Walker, whose state is one of the leaders in the lawsuit to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act and its pre-existing condition protections, told the crowd, quote, don't believe the lies, quote, that Republicans don't want to protect pre-existing conditions in in the Arizona Senate race. Republican Congresswoman Martha McSally, who voted to undercut their protections more than once, also said her opponent, a Democratic congresswoman, was lying by saying that she, McSally, doesn't support the protections. What is happening here? Um, Well, (laughs) (laughs) um,
2: Republicans have been hammered for months now uh, very effectively by Democrats uh, over the vote the House took last year and over this lawsuit that Republican states are currently arguing that could come down at any moment taking away those protections for pre-existing conditions. Now, Republicans' names are on that vote and that lawsuit, and nothing they say in a campaign speech or debate can can change that. I think uh, they, they have been making these sort of personal arguments that a lot of Democrats were making, um, saying, oh, I would never do anything to hurt have uh, pre-existing conditions because my mother has X or my son, or and so you see Republicans coming out with ads claiming that, um, but then that doesn't square with their actual record or any sort of concrete assertion of what they would do to protect, because they do want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Many of them do,
0: and I mean, we're in this sort of post-vaccine post-fact environment. Kimberly, you're going to do your extra credit uh, early this week because it's on this subject. Tell us Tell us about that story.
3: Yeah, sure. And so it's actually from Reason and- um,
0: Which is the Libertarian magazine.
3: Yes, Libertarian. It's by Peter Sutterman, who's the managing editor there. And he writes, Trump's misleading statements on Obamacare is a sign that Republicans have no idea how to talk about health policy. And he really got to, I think, what kind of the center of the debate is all about. Republicans can say that they- believe in protecting pre-existing conditions and that they also want to repeal Obamacare as long as they have some other sort of substitute that would keep those protections in place. There are certainly other ways to do that. the
0: replace part of the repeal and replace all along.
3: Exactly. There are other ways to make sure that people with serious illnesses can have access to medical care and to coverage. Um, It doesn't have to look like the ACA. uh, Democrats would argue, certain Democrats would argue, it should look more like single payer in order to guarantee those protections. So there are other ways to do it. But it's just the part that, um, you know, and this article talks about that Republicans aren't articulating is how they would go about doing it. Because the way that the ACA did it, you could argue, shuffled a lot of costs onto middle income people, um, in some cases even driving them out of the market and putting – health insurance out of reach for them. So they're almost no better than they were, you know, before right. the ACA. And we've
0: talked about it before. Those are the people who are, who earn too much to get subsidies, who are now basically paying these enormous increases, um, basically to subsidize the people with pre-existing conditions. Exactly,
3: exactly. And so, you know, there is an opportunity here for Republicans, but they've really, you know, instead of articulating their, you know, what the replacement would be and this is something they've struggled with for, you know, since the ACA was passed. Um, you know, they're instead saying broadly we we support, you know, pre-existing conditions. And they've also introduced bills that are similar to the ACA, but then leave out certain parts that actually make health insurance affordable for people with preexisting conditions. So um they haven't they haven't really figured out, you know, their
1: counterargument on all of this. My colleague Josh Green got a um a Poll from the Republican National Committee a little while back that essentially showed
0: so an internal
1: internal poll, it was yeah. internal poll but it essentially showed that um, making the argument you know that they're you know for something and Democrats are not is really the best thing the best way to kind of get at their base to um, you know make their argument and I think we've seen over and over again that um, specific proposals give. The other side something to hammer against, and so I think they're just they're playing a, a political long game by by doing it this way, um, particularly before a tough midterm election.
0: And yet, and a few
2: oh, a few officials have sort of misrepresented. A few Republican officials have misrepresented a couple things from the the past year. So there was an amendment to what the House passed that purported to protect pre-existing conditions. The MacArthur Amendment. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) The famous MacArthur (laughs) Amendment. Uh, Which basically set up sort of a high-risk pool-esque scenario. So states were allowed to waive protections and charge... Would have been had this become law, would have um, been able to waive protections and charge people with pre existing conditions more. Um, but then there was a pot of money set up to help those people uh, afford those I- increases. And everyone agreed that money was not enough by far, very insufficient to cover the number of people who would have needed it. Um, so there's been a lot of relitigating of that and people, House, Republican House members saying, oh, I voted for that bill, but it protected pre-existing conditions when it really didn't. Um, The other thing they're uh, relitigating is the senators who pushed a bill in the Senate more recently that purported to protect pre-existing conditions, although it would have allowed insurers to not cover certain things. So they couldn't the pre turn... the
0: pre-existing conditions. Yes.
2: They couldn't turn people away from coverage, but they could say, well, we'll, uh, we'll take you a uh, cancer patient, but we won't cover your chemo, for That's,
0: instance. And I actually, I posted yesterday a story I did in 2008 about people who were in just that situation. They, they were in high risk, high risk pools, but the, the, there was a waiting period in either six months or a year before they would cover the the actual condition that they needed. And when you have cancer waiting six months or a year, is not really an option for you. So I I guess we're going to see this one down to the wire. But meanwhile, also this week, there was some activity that was not entirely election-related. The Trump administration made some fairly significant regulatory changes impacting the Affordable Care Act and the individual market as a whole. On Monday, the Department of Health and Human Services announced it is going to make it easier for states to get waivers that could let them offer federal subsidies for insurance that does not comply with all the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, meaning skimpier plans, uh, fewer benefits, and possibly not covering some pre-existing conditions. Um, Before we talk about what impact that might have, can somebody explain in English what a 1332 waiver is, volunteers? So it's essentially something a state can use. It was part of the ACA.
1: It was part of the ACA, and it's something that a state can use to, um, I guess, personalize the ACA to their needs a little bit more. Um, But there were these guardrails. So the waivers can't just do anything. The state wants to do to change um, some of the the things in Obamacare. It, the guardrails make tried to make sure that coverage main, was maintained um, and that people were able, were, you know, keeping the same level of coverage. And
0: I think it had to cover the same number of people and the same aggregate cost, right? Right. The, yes. Yeah.
1: So, um. And so now we're we're seeing um, the Trump administration say that, you know, those were really too hard to meet. We weren't able to approve a lot of waivers from states that maybe we otherwise would have. And so they're taking those guardrails and, and making them a little lower, um, essentially, so that, you know, the states could potentially use Obamacare subsidies um for you know to give to people who want to buy plans that are outside of the the ACA marketplace Um, and so that would that would change the idea of coverage being the same and the cost being the same Um, and they're sort of okay they said they're okay with the 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 cost of health insurance going up um, for some people as long as over the long term there's a there's a benefit that it is eventually going down and so um, that's a these are these are going to give states mostly red states who want to use them um, many more options but it's going to set up that divide again where you'll have you know mostly democratic states that, Aren't going to take part, and so the the sort of gap or the uh, marketplace having more and more sick people potentially just because of the healthiest leaving the marketplace to get cheaper plans and now they could can be get exacerb- subsidies for their cheaper plans right and that could definitely be exacerbated.
0: And Kimberly, this is what you were talking about. This is sort of the the push and pull. You've got these people who earn too much to get subsidies, who can't afford any coverage. So maybe they could take advantage of these, you yeah. know, lesser plants, although one presumes they already can. But if they were already in the market and they will leave the market, there's a concern particularly the people who can get subsidized, the healthier people will leave the market, leaving the, only the sicker people behind and then healthcare and then their plants will just get way too expensive.
3: Yeah, I mean potentially. But I mean I, I guess the it's it's kind of a we'll see, you know, how many people actually end up leaving the ACA market versus how many people join these plans who weren't in it because they couldn't afford it in the first place.
0: And first, the state would have to ask to do it because these are just these are they're just allowing for state waivers. They're not.
3: This is going to take a minute. Yeah. 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 So basically, <laughs> um, they said that beginning in 2020, we'd probably start to see some of these changes. I think another thing worth noting is that the Trump administration did say that over the next couple of weeks, they'll be rolling out this sort of menu of options that states can consider in terms of what kinds of. 1332 waivers they want to set up. Um I asked about the potential um changes that states might make. They didn't really budge too much on it, but one thing that administrator in terms of answering my question, but one thing that administrator Verma mentioned was potentially giving subsidies, more subsidies to younger people so that they would enroll and that would help to lower the cost. Um it's possible that states could consider, you know, setting up more of a high risk pool. It's possible that they could also say Um, You know, some of the Medicaid expansion population, we're going to go ahead and move on to the exchanges. Um, These are all things that states have asked for. And so... Well, I, I mean, we'll see when some of these proposals come out in the next couple weeks, but there's more than just potentially buying the um, skimpier plans. You know, st- states can get pretty creative with 1332 waivers. I mean, some of them
0: even tried to set up single payer. I was going to say, it, I mean, that yeah. was the whole point of the, the whole Section 1332. I mean, this was not stuck into the ACA in the dark of night. It was seriously debated. And the idea was to let states, you know, blue states that want to do single payer, although Vermont tried and couldn't quite figure out how to do it, um, but they could pursue that sort of level and that red states could do more market-oriented kinds of things and in practice the, the because of the guardrails that you talked about Anna, the requirements that there have not been a lot of uh, there's not been a lot of ability for some of the more conservative states to try theirs frankly there hasn't been the ability for the more liberal states either um, but uh, yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out but there's so there's that 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 could in theory destabilize the individual market um, on the other hand also on Monday the Trump administration announced new regulatory regulation that could actually end up shoring up the individual market. This one is really nerdy. It concerns something called health reimbursement arrangements, or HRAs. These are tax-sheltered accounts that are similar to health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts, except in those two, usually the, uh, the employee puts in some money, and in HRAs, they're purely employer-funded. Uh, um, anybody, anybody want to take a whack at what this would do?
1: Anna? <laughs> sure, I will try. Um so the the idea is um something that actually generally Democrats and Republicans both like is the decoupling of um health insurance with your employer. And so if um you know if you're sort of buying your own, it's a little bit different, um, even though in this sense you're getting money from the, um, from, the from the employer to right. purchase them, but typically these aren't um, you know premiums aren't something that this sort of money can go towards. Um, you know, and so now that the, that they're changing that, um, it could it could switch things up. I think was it 10 million people that the Congressional Budget Office or that at least um, so the administration thought might make this switch um
2: including uh, one million who didn't have insurance at all before that's right so what? not all
1: of them being a switch but mm-hmm. it would be 10 million who might who might use this um and so i think this is you know obviously sort of another experiment and seeing you know a different way to to get insurance out there um and that but it when you look at it um from the the tax sort of side of it these are people i guess it's 10 million more people potentially that could be using subsidies depending on how much they make so i mean i guess you know we don't really know but um, you know, they could be using subsidies to get their insurance on the individual market, and so that, it that might could be, be expensive. In, yeah, it could be an increased cost for the government.
0: And yet, I mean, it's interesting if you if you go back to the sort of the origins of the Affordable Care Act, they put the Congress put in the mandate for employers to provide coverage um, only over 100. There's, you know, many more small businesses than there are larger businesses. And I think the original idea, and this is what the Congressional Budget Office estimated, that many, many people in smaller businesses would go on to the exchanges and buy their own insurance, That and they would get subsidies. And that would help shore up the individual market, because by and large people who are working are healthier than people who are not, just in, ge- in general if you look at it in the aggregate. So the idea was that would sort of infuse more healthy people into the exchanges. And then, of course, when the exchanges kind of, you know, crash on launch in 2013, a lot of small employers who were kind of looking forward to saying, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. I'm going to send my employees to the exchange didn't do it because the exchanges just didn't work very well and the insurance was really expensive. And and so that's why, I mean, that's I think one of the main reasons why the exchanges are as are as small as they are and as small, the individual market remains as small as it is. So in some ways, if these people were to get some employer money to go into the individual market, that would be a good thing for the individual market, right? Yeah, potentially,
1: yeah. Yeah, it could be. Um, you know, we're always talking about the risk pool and how important that is. Um, and if you are getting healthier people in there, maybe that counteracts some of the other things we were talking about.
0: So on the one hand, we have the the administration saying, trying to trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act and on the. Other side, we have the administration trying to fix the Affordable Care Act. And depending on the day, they actually will say one or the other. (laughs) Or both in the same day. Or (laughs) both in the same day, sometimes in the same speech. Um, I'm sorry if that confuses you, but it is confusing. Uh, All right, we are going to leave the news there for this week. It is now time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Kimberly, you've already done yours. Who wants to go next? Uh, Anna, I see you ready. <laughs> yes,
1: um, mine is from the New York Times. It's "Miscarrying at Work: The Physical Toll of Pregnancy Discrimination." It's by Jessica Silver Greenberg and Natalie Kitroff. Um, the The story look, you know, it follows some women who um, were working in pretty tough conditions. Um, who, you know, no air conditioning, lifting heavy boxes. Um, This was part of their job. But when they got pregnant, um, it became difficult and they asked their bosses over and over for some, you know, some ability to do some lighter work and they weren't given it and they miscarried. And this um, happens fairly often. And they, there have been attempts Well, I would say there have been legislation at least introduced in Congress to do something about it, but nothing has ever kind of seen a hearing or gone any further than that. Um, So this is a look at a a pretty dire situation for a lot of women who are doing physical labor, um, but, you know, they also can get pregnant. And, you know, there are some considerations that the nation might need to start thinking about.
0: And there is a Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) it's not always enforced.
2: Alice. Um, I was very interested in a new report that uh, Kaiser put out on uh, Medicaid enrollment and Medicaid cost. These
0: are our colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Yes.
2: Over the past year, uh, Medicaid enrollment has dipped slightly, about half a percent. And the report mainly attributes that to the improving economy. But it just raised all sorts of interesting questions for me. Um, one, I guess, yes, the economy is improving and unemployment is very, very low. Um, however, most of the new jobs that are being created are not, you know, these full-time with nice health benefits jobs. Um, so that that raised some questions for me about Medicaid going down. Um, I also wanted to know whether the Trump administration slashing open enrollment outreach has contributed to Medicaid enrollment dropping since... Um, a lot of uh, folks became enrolled that way. They didn't know they were eligible. Um, right, they would
0: they would go sign up for on the exchange and discover that they were eligible for Medicaid. Right,
2: right. Often with a navigator who helped sort of steer them in the right direction. And now that service is slashed to almost we we used to call
0: that the woodwork effect. But then Medicaid people said, no, you should call it the welcome mat effect. Okay. <laughs> but it it does tend to increase yeah. medicaid enrollment.
2: Right, right. Um I I was interested to see that uh the biggest drop was in uh adults in non-expansion states. So I yeah, I wonder since non-expansion states also don't tend to fund outreach a lot if that is Tied. Um, we were talking before uh, earlier today uh, whether the Trump administration's new uh, public charge rule that penalizes uh, immigrants who are seeking a green card if they have used any kind of federal um, health uh, program, uh, relied on that, and so are people deterred because of that from enrolling. So, yeah, just a lot of interesting questions, and we will see where it goes in the next year as a bunch of states vote on expanding.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well— Three voting to expand, one one voting to maintain its expansion. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. And so between that and governor's races where the Democratic candidate is promising to fight for expansion, uh, we could see a big swing
0: next year. All right. Well. I actually have two stories that are on the same subject. One's from Dan Diamond at Politico and one is from Tessa Stewart at Rolling Stone. Both are about anti-abortion evangelicals at the Department of Health and Human Services and what that has meant, particularly to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is responsible for sheltering unaccompanied minors who present at the U.S. border. Earlier this year, they were also uh, responsible for the minors who were made unaccom- unaccompanied by being forcibly separated from their parents. It turns out that the head of the office, Scott Lloyd, who's an anti-abortion activist, He earlier tried to prevent pregnant minors from getting abortions even after they got permission from a judge. Um, He made such a mess of keeping track of the children separated from their parents that HHS Secretary Alex Azar himself had to step in personally. Um, Anyway, you should definitely read both stories. And that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner, Rovner. At Alice olstein At Leonard KL. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.